I think sometimes the Church of Jesus um, is not desperate for the Lord because of its thinking. I think it's not so much that we backslid or started sinning profusely with our life. It's that we stop thinking right. And when you stop thinking right, you stop seeing right. You stop relating right. You stop receiving right. Um, and in a sense, that's what I want to express to you in my teaching today about getting our thinking right so our speech would be right, so our life would move into victory. I saw, as it were, when people were sharing words, a picture of a butterfly, which reminded me of Romans 12 that says we're transformed by the renewing of the mind or by changing the way we think. And I think the imagery of hiding under a bridge or hiding away in a storm, as Kristen said, and struggling with life is often because we've shifted in our thinking. Our thinking's become stinking. And we're running away from a God that loves us and we're running away from a church that God formed us to be connected to. And God is wanting to reset things today to bring us into a place of victory that is already ours in Christ. Amen, church. I woke up on Thursday, you know, I was supposed to be preaching on 1 Corinthians 5 or at the latter part of 1 Corinthians 4. I was a bit torn from Monday through to Wednesday, but the Father knew I was going to prepare this message on Thursday and Friday. And so I wake up on Thursday morning, and the first thing I do is my feet touches the carpet, don't mock me for this, is I start singing, be bold, be strong. Now, I don't, I don't normally wake up singing songs. Um, I'm, not, I'm not the one leading worship at church, thank the Lord. But I, I started to channel my own Ron Canoli. I know he didn't do that song, but you can imagine the moment I wanted to take on a big black man's posture and stomp around my bedroom. Come on and walk in faith and victory. And I started to re repeat this refrain. And then it must have been the Holy Ghost because seemingly, without any faltering, I transitioned to a famous song from 1979. Some of you were believers in 1979. Give me a wave if you were a believer and you were walking with Jesus back in 1979. Just keep your hands up. Just look around the room at all the maturity that sits in this house. People who've been believers for a long time. And I know you will know this song and you will actually love this song. And if you don't love this song, I'm going to put it out there. Forget the music style. You're not saved. <laughs> <laughs> Do you remember this one? I'm going to give you a little spoiler. By Diane Fung. Ah, don't know who it is yet, do you? 1979. Victory is on our lips and in our lives. For Jesus has surely been raised from the dead. Don't you love that line? He's surely been raised from the dead. And never shall the powers of darkness triumph. You've got it now, haven't you, lad? Jesus is Lord over all. And neither shall the powers of darkness. Good. Is that modulation? Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord over some all. Hallelujah. 
And so I'm there in this place and I'm saying, I'm hearing you, Lord. I'm channeling Ron Canoli. You want me to preach on victory? And the scripture downloaded into that moment was, thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. That word victory is where Nike or Nike gets its apparel name from. It means victory. It's the goddess of victory. It's the goddess of victory in history. And that word in there is is nikos. It's It's the noun in that sense. But the ones we're going to be looking at are an active victory that the church, here we go, forget the grammar, the church already has the victory. So if my brother Jim were here, he might be in Greece or he might be preaching elsewhere. He sent me a text a few weeks ago to tell me where he was and I've forgotten which bit relates to today. (laughs) Run the victory victory side, friends. (laughs) Brother Jim, I love you, wherever you are. It's the truth. We are, we are on the victory side. I remember preaching the gospel in a Stoke-on-Trent town called Biddulph with some church that I'd equipped. And I was walking around, I was preaching, I was sharing the gospel with everything that breathed. And this Satanist came over to me, this young girl. She was beautiful, but the enemy had made her dark, so she had these steely, dark black eyes. And she looked at me with this cold stare and told me she was a Satanist. And I leant into her and I said, you do know you're on the losing side, don't you? Now, most Satanists come up with a load of bull at this point and give me loads of reasons why the devil's not the biggest angel in their team, which I've had from lots of them. And in this case, she just nodded at me and she said, yes, she, she agreed. She was on the losing team. And I said, don't you think you should change team? Don't adjo- in subtext, don't you want to join the victory side? You know, she left that conversation, not a convert to Jesus, but somebody who'd had a touch of God on her life because she looked back over her shoulder and said, with cold, still the coldness on, she said, I've enjoyed this conversation. And just as a parting shot, Paul saw me do it yesterday with a Muslim family that I was sharing. I said, don't forget, Jesus loves you. You know, because devil worshippers don't have a love in their camp, but we have a love in our camp that's for everyone. So it doesn't matter your background, Jesus loves you. Isn't it wonderful to be able to tell people that? No strings attached, not recruiting you. I was trying to help you to join my church. Jesus loves you. And this is the victory side. You know, we had things mentioned in this service about um, how we overcome this world. I think it was red or something like that at the beginning by Paul. 1 John 5, 4 says, this is the victory that overcomes the world. Even our faith. Come on and walk in faith and come on and walk in faith and victory for the Lord. Your God is with you. Jesus is with you and for you. And if God is for you, who can be against you? Diane Fung, I love your song. Victory is on our lips. And what is it? Is victory on your lips today and in your lives? Diane Fung knew what it was to have victory on her lips and in our lives. I was having a retro moment in my room. And I was thinking, man, they were good songs back in the day, weren't they? We sung the truth plain in the 70s and 80s. We said what it would be. So thanks for the safeguarders in the room protecting me from tripping. I do, I do much. If I, if I fall, it's not the Holy Ghost. <laughs> Thanks, James. 
You see, I believe the Lord has put this word on my heart because he desires to restore. Listen to this, church, please. Don't just listen to me ranting. This is the Lord's word to you. He wants to restore victory speech to the lips of the church. Did you hear that? God is wanting to restore victory speech to the lips of the church. There's not enough preaching about victory. There's not enough songs. Songwriters, listen to me. There's not enough songs about victory. There's not enough books written about victory, but theologically, it's a grand theme to be on the victory side. It's time today to reset the balance. It's time to put us on the front foot because that's where we are. That's where we are. We're not on the back foot. I remember going into a house in Skelmersdale, and it was not a believer's house, a relative, I think, of Jeanette's. I went to Joel Turton, and we sat at the dining room of a lady who was having poltergeist-like presence in her home. Things were being thrown around, footsteps on the landing of invisible forces, smells, manifestations of stuff in the corner of the room. And I sat with this woman and I said, I know where it is. It's in that corner by the telly, isn't it? She said, that's where I see it when it appears. I said, I'm not interested in it. I said, I want you know, to know Jesus. And she, she was led to Jesus because I wanted her to be able to safeguard her own home. And then I, I just did a little walk around the house. And I went upstairs into her bedroom with Joel and herself, and I saw directly over where the television was a Baphomet statue. You know, for those who know about Occult, it's a, it's a symbol of Satan. It was in Aztec form. I said, well, that can go to start with. I thought, it's linked to that. And as I walked down the stairs, I felt this enemy follow me, loom over me down the stairs. And she smashed it in the bin with gumption. And then we went round the house, and we removed from the house all of the New Age books, you know, speak to the universe and it will come back to you and all of that rubbish that people buy into. And I was trashing ornaments with her. In her own house, can you believe this? And I got to the end of the moment and I, and I said, would you like some new ornaments? <laughs> I offered to buy her some new ornaments. But here's the testimony. Because her daughter wasn't a believer. Isn't probably a believer now. But the testimony is true. She came to her mum and she said, what has happened in this house? It feels a lot lighter. The footsteps stopped. What had been in a house had been evicted in Jesus' name. Let me tell you why. Because we are on the victory side. I'm going to get into this because I'm going to talk about sin, death, Satan. Jesus has won it all. And if we don't live in the light of this, you'll live in a defeated Christian existence. Jesus has put us on the victory side. God wants to restore victory speech to the church. And you know what? To not have the right thoughts on this matter, to not have our mind lined up with God. Paul was talking about lining up with Jesus thinking means that you will do damage to yourself and the church through the way you speak and pray. Because your words have power. The Bible says the word of the Lord created everything. It says in the Psalms, by the word of the Lord, the heavens were made and all the host of them by the breath of his mouth. In other words, God made things by speaking. And your victory always follows your voice. The word of the Lord, the heavens were made, all the host of them by the breath of his mouth. And then God breathes into Adam. 
and gives human beings made in the same image the ability to speak and say things. That's why James says, out of our mouths, brothers and sisters, flow blessings and curses. With our mouth, we praise God our Father and we curse our brothers and sisters. Brethren, this ain't to be so. Because we have power in our words. The Bible says, life and death are in the power of the tongue. And we will eat the fruit of it. That's what it says in the word. We bind up or we loose by what we say. Can I say to you that there's been a lot of rubbish preached on binding and loosing? When I had a high-level witch come into my office to be delivered from all of her demons, I didn't start binding Satan. You know, when I was a kid, I was like, oh, if I just say those magical words, maybe I can put some chains on the devil. That's not what Jesus is talking about with words. He's saying, whatever you bind or whatever you agree with, will be agreed with in heaven. In this context, he's talking about church discipline, but it's universally applicable with words. Whatever you loose on earth, i.e. deny, permit or deny, bind and loose, that will be done for them by their Father in heaven. Because coming into agreement with heaven, as in heaven, so also on earth, we become the conduits for heaven's resources. And so... I've got to be careful how I speak about myself and others. I've got to be careful how I pray for myself and others because the church can go into a place it shouldn't be with what it says. Let's read Joshua chapter 6 as a side story. Joshua chapter 6, verses 1 to 21. Now, the gates of Jericho were securely barred because of the Israelites. What's the subtext of that? Do they feel very secure? Are they nervous? They would have been told that they're nervous of the people of God. Rahab said that. They're nervous about you guys. They know the Lord's with you. The doors of Jericho were securely barred. They are nervous because God's hands on the people. No one went in. No one came out. Then the Lord said to Joshua, see, I've delivered Jericho into your hands, along with its kings and fighting men. March around the city once with all the armed men. Do this for six days. Have seven priests carry trumpets of ram's horns in front of the ark. On the seventh day, march around the city seven times with the priests blowing the trumpets. When you hear them, sound a long blast on the trumpets. Have the whole army give a loud shout. Then the wall of the city will collapse. And the army will go up, everyone straight in it. So Joshua son of Nun, called the priests and said to them, take up the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord and have seven priests carry trumpets in front of it. And he ordered the army, advance, march around the city with an armed guard going ahead of the Ark of the Lord. And when Jesus had spoken, when when Joshua had spoken to the people, the seven priests carrying the seven trumpets before the Lord went forward, blowing their trumpets and the Ark of the Lord's Covenant followed them. Then armed guards marched ahead of the priests who blew the trumpets, and the rear guard followed the ark. All this time the trumpets were sounding, but Joshua had commanded the army, do not give a war cry. Do not raise your voices. Do not say a word until the day I tell you to shout, then shout. So he had the ark of the Lord carried around the city, circling it once. 
Then the army returned to camp and spent the night there. Joshua got up early the next morning and the priests took up the Ark of the Lord. The seven priests carrying the seven trumpets went forward, marching before the Ark of the Lord and blowing the trumpets. The armed men went ahead of them and the rear guard followed the Ark of the Lord while the trumpets kept sounding. So on the second day, they marched around the city once and returned to the camp. They did this for six days. Verse 15, on the seventh day, they got up at daybreak and marched around the city seven times in the same manner, except that on that day, they circled the city seven times. The seventh time round, when the priests sounded the blast of the trumpet, Joshua commanded the army, shout, for the Lord has given you this city. The city and all that are in it are to be devoted to the Lord. Only Rahab the prostitute and all who are with her in a house shall be spared because she hid the spies we sent. But keep away from the devoted things so you will not bring about your own destruction by taking any of them. Otherwise, you'll make the camp of Israel liable to destruction and bring trouble on it. All the silver and gold and the articles of bronze and iron are sacred to the Lord and must go into his treasury. When the trumpet sounded, the army shouted, and at the sound of the trumpet, the men gave a loud shout. The wall collapsed. So everyone charged straight in, and they took the city. They devoted the city to the Lord and destroyed with the sword everything living in it, men, women, young and old, cattle, sheep, and donkeys. The Lord is wanting to restore the victory shout to the church. I noticed that the Lord gave the city to his people. Some of us, we long for God to give us Billinge or Skelmersdale. And I believe with devoted prayer lives, you can usher in that possibility. I really believe that. Some of you need to hear this, you intercessors amongst us. It will hang and be lifted high or it will fall on its face depending on your prayers. So important to the intercessors in this church. I think of the 1990s when you had Marjorie and Evelyn and Lillian and Ron and Sheila Martland, Gwyneth Boxall, Dennis Boxall, these people whose names are written in heaven, praying until something happens. They kept our church together in the early 90s in the series of scene of the Toronto Blessing. They birthed into us a new phase into the uh, noughties, we call it, don't they? 2,000 years onward. They brought us out of the Shadowlands through their prayers, and they saw us where we are now. Their prayers were not in vain. Are you hearing? So that's a word for the intercessors in this room. Things are won and lost in prayer. Won or lost in prayer, and you are very important to this church if you're a secret intercessor, somebody who does an awful lot of warring in the spirit. The Lord is wanting to restore the victory shout to the church. Do you know, it's a similar victory shout to the one we see, go next slide please, in 1 Corinthians 15. No, back again, go back, sorry guys, back, 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 that'll do. But thanks be to God, this is the victory shout of Paul. Thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul is thankful and thankfulness is really important because what it does is it accepts whatever's been given. So often we're not thankful in life and life's full of discontent because the Bible says we should be content with such things as we have, knowing the Lord's our helper. But often we're discontent because we bought into the world's philosophy that having more will make me happy. 
But the Bible says, be content with such things as you have. And contentment ushers in a thankfulness. And if I say, thank you, Lord, what I do is I birth the response of heaven to bring blessing of all that is in God on my life. Thankfulness for others in prayer. When you're praying for others, and I'll mention this again, if you can't thank God for them, you're likely to be praying off. And I'll talk about that in depth in a minute because that can become a very destructive thing and not a potent prayer avenue. Thanks be to God who gives us the victory. How does he give us the victory? Through our Lord Jesus Christ. How is he giving us victory in that passage, Paul? Paul is going through, if you remember 1 Corinthians 15, over this challenge in the Corinthian church about people who did not believe in the resurrection. And he said, Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. We've seen him. So many people he lists that have seen him. Over 500 people have seen him. He's alive. And then he goes through all sorts of explanations, imagery about how the dead in Christ will rise, just as Jesus has risen from the dead. And even in that passage, talks about the problem of sin. Has anyone got any problems with sin <laughs> in this congregation? The Bible says if we say we're without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. And this is what the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, the sting of sin is in the law. In other words, if the law wasn't there to be a descriptor of the moral high bar that God wants to give us, we could live however we want. The truth is God's given everyone a conscience, and Christians are heightened conscience by the Spirit, so we know the difference between truth and error, between bad and good. That's why it says in the Scriptures, I will put my Spirit in them. I'll put my law on their heart. I'll give them a heart of flesh instead of a heart of stone, and they will live. God wants to heighten our conscience, but the problem with conscience or written law is it points to the fact that we can't do it. We, we can't live the life God's calling us to live. Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Be holy as I am holy. Okay, Lord, we can't do that. So, so there is the sting of the law. But Paul comes on the back of that statement and says, people die, the last enemy, death hasn't been destroyed, not all things have been made a footstool for his feet. And then in bursts this statement where he says, sin's been dealt with, death's been dealt with. And he could, if he wanted to throw another theological bomb in the mix, say the devil's been dealt with, we'll get to that. But he says, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, Jesus, in short, has triumphed over the grave. For those of you who've had people leave them, loved ones, in this life, and they died in faith, we have that sure and certain hope, don't we, of the resurrection of the dead. It's a beautiful Christian truth that Jesus died and he rose again. If Christ, the first fruits, rose from the dead, what will be our portion at Christ's coming? What is it, church? We will live with him. We will reign with him. We will walk with him in the cool of the day. We will know our Lord for eternity. Jesus has triumphed over the grave. Jesus has triumphed over sin. Don't you know that Paul also writes, away from 1 Corinthians 15 in Colossians, that all those laws that bring a sting to sin were nailed to the cross. Have you ever read that? Colossians 2. It says the handwritings of the requirements of the law were written as a shopping list underneath Jesus and then nailed 
to the cross. Where you couldn't live the Christian life, and here's the gospel for those who've never heard it, where you couldn't measure up to God your high bar standard that God requires of you and the places where you failed to achieve it, the handwritings of the requirements of the law, Colossians 2, 13, 14, 15, he talks about this, were nailed to the cross. Now, what would have happened if we'd have put your sins and your failures under Jesus' hands on a list? It is my assumption that the blood would have poured from Emmanuel's veins. And what would have happened to the list? It's under the blood. (laughs) This is the grace of God in Jesus. You're forgiven. You're accepted in the beloved. You're reconciled to God. You have peace with God, Romans 5, through our Lord Jesus Christ. You are one spirit with the Lord. You're a new creation. You're seated in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, far above all rule and authority. God has done something that you already have, but we don't live in the benefit of it. We're not living as victory people. We don't have victory speech on our lips. It sounds prideful. It sounds presumptuous. It sounds triumphalistic. But let it be so triumphalistic. The word triumph is repeated again and again in the New Testament. Let me show you a few examples of the word triumph. 2 Corinthians 2.14 But thanks be to God, who is always leading us in Victory or triumph, you can go either way. Same sort of idea. What is that picture, Jesus? It's the picture of a triumphal possession of an already victorious general. And Paul says in that passage that the fragrance of his victory goes through us everywhere we go because we are captives in his train being led in his victory march. Everywhere that Jesus' victory is to be established, you carry it. That's why it says in one sense with the aroma of life leading to life, to others the aroma of death leading to death because victory is on you whether you know it or not. He's always leading us in triumph. Colossians 2.15, same word, triumph. He has stripped the principalities and powers of their authority and disgraced them in public, past tense. How did he do it? By triumphing over them in Christ. The devil, here we go, is defeated. There's not many amens to that. You see, the problem the church have with that truth is that, and he knows it, is that the enemies of our soul still hold a measure of power like the Egyptian priests did in front of Moses. So occultists have power. The enemy has power, but they're stripped of their authority. So for you, as a Christian, you have authority over every demonic entity. The weakest saint, the smallest Christian, has authority over every demonic entity, including Satan himself. And this is the thing, you see, we believe what we feel rather than what the Word says. The the Lord's positioned Satan 
under our fate and design the church to make known to the demonic realm this new world order. There we go. Let's use that word properly. Not the one the devil wants to call it. This new world order is this. I'm going to read it to you. His purpose was that now, through the church, the many-sided wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. In other words, Christ's rule fills the universe. But God has designated that the church's job is to tell them that, to push them back, to say, no, not on my watch. This is the Lord's hour. So often the church feels defeated. We're not. It's a deception. Can you imagine? Can you imagine the people of God with Joshua marching around the city gates and the city walls again and again and again and again and again and again? I don't know if we can count seven. <laughs> and then seven times on the last day. There would have been, if, if Joshua hadn't have given that injunction not to speak, a lot of muttering, a lot of gossip, a lot of criticism. I saw that guy, that leader, Joshua, talking to himself. I think he's lost the plot. Well, I think he was praying, actually. No, 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 I think he's, he's, he's balmy. Look at us walking around this city. He's off his head, this guy. What are we doing? Those walls are massive. Nothing's ever going to happen by us just walking around with our mouths. This is a terrible battle plan. I think we could scale that wall. You know, if we really work together, we could scale that wall. And all the conversation would have been there. Others might have said, you know, we're done for. How can you breach a wall like that? Look at its thickness. How can we breach a wall and see Rahab survive? How are we going to do this? is impossible. And all the time, they would have been speaking unbelief, doubt. Remember Jesus, when he healed someone, he got the unbelief out of the room. Peter copies him later on, healing in the book of it. He got the unbelief out of the room. He got the negative speech out of the room. So much of what the church says and is, is not what God wants them to be. They adopt an agreement with Satan rather than an agreement with God and his word. They take on fleshly ideas, earthly wisdom. Paul's mentioned that. Look at James, look at 1 Corinthians. And it leads them to a place, if you study James as a book, James chapter 3 and 4, where they start speaking with earthly wisdom. So they start imposing on the church, this is the way we do it in my vocation. We shouldn't do it like this in the local church. Or this is how you lead and manage. They forget that Gideon was no leader. But the Spirit of God came upon him and he summoned the Abrahezrites and they followed him. The qualification for leadership is anointing of the Spirit, biblically. That's why you get strange people like Wigglesworth doing incredible things. Because with God, all things are possible. You still with me, church? Can you stay the flow? I, I think it's really important to know that the church is to drive back the devil in these days. It's really important that you know that that's the job of the church. Listen to this, church. Some of you have quoted this verse, chapter and verse, many times over. Revelation 12, 11, maybe some of you have it on your fridge and know it by heart. They overcame him by the blood of the lamb and by what? What they said. By the word of their testimony, and they love not their lives to their death. Do you know what that scripture actually says in Revelation 12, 11? You don't have it in most English translations. I think the New King James is getting there. It says past tense. It's the aorist tense. The aorist tense in the Greek. Let me just read this to you so I don't waffle on. The aorist tense in the Greek is a simple past tense. 
unlike other past tenses, the aorist simply states the fact that an action has happened. It's happened. It's done. So let me read that again with that knowledge. Revelation 12, 11. It should actually say, and they have overcome him. Come on, see if you can get this. They have overcome him by the blood of the Lamb. What does that say about our victory over Satan? It's a done deal. And they overcome him by the they have overcome him by the blood of the Lamb and the words they speak coming into agreement with that victory. The testimony of the truth of Jesus. So in Christ, the believers gained victory over sin, over death, over hell. The problem we have now is the church of Jesus Christ don't live in the benefit of the victory that's theirs. So how do we get there? How do we live as victory people? Our confessions and our prayers are often like what I imagine the people of Jericho were like, as I've just mentioned. We mutter, we criticize, we gossip, we believe lies, we speak out when we should stay silent, all of us on different levels. No wonder Joshua commanded the people to stay silent. Joshua knew that to speak out would have meant certain defeat. He understood the power of unbelief. He understood the power of the tongue. As I've said earlier, victory always begins with the voice. Remember, they overcame him by the word of their testimony. Remember when Jesus said, it is written. He spoke out the word of God to say what was true, to defeat the enemy. Victory and defeat are literally, according to the scriptures, held in the power of the tongue. Victory begin or ends with our voice. What you agree with, you empower, whether it's a lie or a truth. This is how Christians give ground to the enemy. I've been a pastor long enough to know that Christians can give ground to the demonic realm. I've had to deal with people who've adopted the enemy's thinking and given ground in the life. Ephesians says, don't give the devil a place, a foothold, a locale through the things that you do and say. It is possible as a believer. Proverbs 18.21 says, death and life are in the power of the tongue and those who love it will eat its fruit. James 3.9-10 says, with the tongue we praise our Father and with it we curse human beings who have been made in God's likeness. Let's have a look at that together. Uh, put the Derek Prince slide up, please. Give me a hand wave if you know who Derek Prince is. He's a wonderful man. I believe he was in the lineage of Alan Jackson at Murfreesboro, Tennessee. For those who are involved with the ICEJ, he's quite a significant Pentecostal minister. He was wonderfully saved in the war. He was in, he was in, the, he was in the barracks and the Spirit of God came upon him whilst he was doing his national service. And he was a Cambridge scholar, a very, very bright man. And Derek Prince in his book, <clears throat> Blessing or Cursed Church, You Can Choose, speaks about the power of the tongue. <clears throat> and I, I really recommend that book to you as a Christian if you've never read it. Two books Im impacted me the most in the 1990s, and I read shed loads of books in the 1990s. One of them was this one, the other one was Victory Over the Darkness by Neil Anderson, and his subsequent book, The Bondage Breaker. This is a very good book and well worth reading. And if you miss some of the teaching and what I'm going to say very quickly, it's worth going to this book and seeing whether Derek Prince's book will have the same blessed effect on your life as it did on mine. Now, 
thinking about what I'm teaching today, two chapters stood up in my memory that I was reminded of when I was preparing this, of stuff I'd learned in the 1990s. The, the two chapters are a soulish talk and soulish prayers. Soulish talks are related to what James teaches about blessings and curses coming out of our same mouth to bind brothers and sisters or to praise God our Father. There's that two-fold emphasis. We can do both. We can literally curse our brothers and sisters by what we say. Derek Prince says, Some years ago, while in Europe on a ministry trip, I found myself in a situation that gave me vivid new insight into the dangers of soulish talk. I was preparing to speak at a very significant meeting when I was seized with a crippling pain in my lower abdomen. Fearing that I may have to cancel my commitment to speak that evening, I called out to God for help. Immediately, I had a mental picture of two Christian friends of mine about 6,000 miles away in the United States talking about me. There was a very warm personal relationship among the three of us, but my two friends had had disagreements strongly with a recent course of action I'd taken. I sensed that their conversation about me was criticizing me for my action and that their negative words were producing the physical symptoms I was struggling against. Furthermore, this was a strategy of Satan to keep me from ministering that evening. I saw that I needed to do two things. First, by decision of my my will, I forgave my friends for the words they were speaking against me. Then I acted on the promise of Jesus in Matthew 18, 18, whatsoever you bind on earth, what you, what you agree or permit, what you permit to happen, or bind up and say it won't happen, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. With that authority vested in the name of Jesus, I bound the satanic forces at work against me, and then I loosen myself from the effects of my friends' words about me. Within five minutes, the pain in my abdomen had ceased entirely and never returned. A few hours later, I was able to minister effectively in the meeting and it had a sense that God's purpose in teaching me had been fulfilled. Now, some of you are thinking, well, that's nonsense, that's subjective, but there is power in what we say. If you don't understand that scripturally, it's worth a deeper study. Your words have power for good or for ill. If you come agreement with the enemy, faith's confession can be faith's confession in God's word or faith's confession in the enemy's thoughts about another. You can come into agreement with Satan, or you can come into agreement with Jesus. It's up to you. Here's an example of where you will know that your heart is not right if you can't give thanks to God for another before you pray. And, and I mean that extensively. I had an elder come to my house once, and it wasn't in this church, another church that I pastored. And this was a significant leader, national-level leader, significant man of God. And they told me that in their business dealings, they would often pray people out, so him and others, but him particularly. And he was kind of boasting about if he had a problem worker in his staff, he would simply pray them on. And time after time again, he told me this about six or seven examples. I was listening to him in my lounge in uh, the area that I lived. And he carried on. And usually for me, I listened for, at length. I didn't interject. And then when he finished speaking, I said, that's witchcraft. He expected me to celebrate him. I didn't celebrate him. I said, because you don't manipulate the course of another person's life through your prayers. You pray God's best prayer for them. See, prayers can come, and here's the chapter on soulish prayers, which concurs with that. Prayers can be an abomination to God. Oh my goodness, where's he going with this? Is that in the word? Proverbs 28 verse 9 says, 
one who turns away his ear from hearing the law, even his prayer is an abomination. In other words, the royal law of love, if your prayers are not harnessed by love, they can be harnessed by something else. If you're praying, trying to change things, and the only caveat I would put in that is if you're trying to pray that someone gets saved, that's a good way to change the course of someone else's life. Or even even when Putin was doing the things in the Ukraine, I was asking the Lord to intervene. I heard some good prayers. Lord, save the man, change the man. I wasn't praying him dead. Some of you might hope that intervention happened that way. I was asking the Lord to intervene on the global stage and move the pieces his way and protect the people in the Ukraine and deal with the issues there so that there would be no war. But the minute you start trying to assassinate other people through your prayers, you just become a Christian witch. It's all gone very quiet. It's the truth. Derek Prince teaches on this. Chapter 15 of that book, Behind Me. Let me give you an excerpt which might help clarify what I'm saying. A missionary in India, writes Derek Prince, and a previous generation developed such an effective ministry of prayer that he became known as Praying Hyde. Nice name, isn't it? Could call it Praying James. I know who my prayer warriors are. On one occasion, he was praying for an Indian evangelist whose ministry lacked both fire and fruit. He was about to say, Lord, you know how cold that brother is. He got as far as the words, Lord, you know how. But the Holy Spirit would not allow him to complete his sentence. These are people that are intimate with the Lord. Suddenly, Hyde realized that it was not his business to accuse his fellow servant. Instead of focusing on the man's faults, he began to thank God for everything good he could find in him. Now, within months, the Indian brother was dramatically transformed. He became known throughout the whole area as a dedicated, effective winner of souls. That's the type of power of prayer based on positive appreciation and thankfulness for all the good in a person. But suppose Hyde had not been sensitive to the Holy Spirit and had continued to pray in a negative and condemnatory way. Could not this prayer still have been effective, but in the opposite direction? Could he not have been a- brought upon his fellow servants such a heavy burden of condemnation that he might have never been able to rise above it? In my own personal experience, I once had a troublesome neighbor. I say once because I have a good relationship with him now. He was so troublesome that he brought physical threats to me. He threatened to break my nose and other things. He was quite a character. And so I was really upset, and I decided to pray him out of the street. And I was praying, and eventually, you know, I touched something in prayer, and the, and the sign came up. Next door, he was off. Oh, man, what a warrior you are in the Lord, Steve. The sign came up, and the Lord told me off. <laughs> what, are you, what are you doing, Steve? Were your prayers for that man founded in love? No, they were founded in selfishness and self-interest. So I want you to change the way you pray, Stephen. So I started to pray my best prayers for him. The sign went down. 
The man and his girlfriend got miraculously healed by Jesus. In COVID, he leapt over when we were supposed to be separated from one another. You know, do you remember the distancing days? Do you remember that? Couldn't do this, could you, William, anyway? Couldn't do this, couldn't do this back then. You couldn't do this. Couldn't do this. He leapt over onto my drive. And bear in mind, he is not a hugger. He's one of those guys who was beaten by his dad and all of that business. He held me like that. And then he looked terrified and went, I don't normally do this. <laughs> and he was, I was like, oh, even I was overwhelmed. I'm a hugger. Even I was overwhelmed. But what had started as me manipulating the course of another person's life had ended up in the place where he's told me, I want you to be my priest when I die, if you're still alive. We have fun together. He actually protects my house in a scary way, even when, I, <laughs> when he thinks I'm out. He's ready to jump over the, the fence. You can hear him. Who's that? Oh, it's only you, Steve. <laughs> I don't know what's going on with that. But we have this lovely relationship. I came by praying God's best prayers for him. The Lord told me as I moved into that street, I brought you to that street for the people in the street. I wonder whether we can redeem negative situations ourselves by sowing words in prayer that are life-giving, not death-bringing. You know, church, this is a big subject, and I'm going to stop here for that reason. But I want to remind you that we must learn to speak life and own our words carefully. We'll know a greater victory in our Christian journey for ourselves and others if we measure our speech. We can literally bind and loose the church with what we say and what we pray. The church will also rise to a place of greater victory, which is rightfully theirs in Christ. Let me ask you this question in closing. Are your words sowing defeat when Jesus won the victory over sin, death, and hell? And in the words of Diane Funk, victory is on our lips and in our lives, for Jesus has surely been raised from the dead. Neither shall the powers of darkness triumph, for Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. Amen. Let me pray. Father, help us if on one small measure shift to be better with our words and what we say and what we pray. Help us to speak life, not death. Help us to bless and not curse. Help us to love and not be selfish. Amen.